when you look at legal requirements for like agreements and things for managed service providers, what do you, you know, there's a, a lot of people in the groups that they just like to ask for an agreement. Is that okay? No, no, it's not. I, I have yet to meet any two MSPs that are identical. The, you know, th they might share some similar services, but at the fundamental level of the services that are being provided, they're not the same. The pricing isn't the same. The terms around the service aren't the same. Oftentimes the products that, that they're using and delivering are not the same. And the way that I like to deal with MSPs is we, we get into the nuts and bolts of what services you're actually providing to your customers and what, what are the guarantees that you're receiving as the MSP from those providers? Because you, you don't want to promise anything that exceeds the warranties and guarantees that your vendors are giving to you. And I, I've heard very similar comments before where, you know, I found this template online. I've been using it for years. I've modified it, you know, time and time again. And when we start looking at what that template says and the MSP explains to me how the business actually runs, they're mutually exclusive, totally, totally different. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that exact experience where they think they're providing one service, but their contract says they're providing another service. So, you know, it, it's a risk you take if you're going to pull something offline and uh, keep modifying it, you know, just, just a little bit here and a little bit there. Uh, over time, it, it really deviates from the service you're actually providing to your customers. So I ask a really, uh, hopefully this will be a simple question. A lot of people, a lot of people in the MSB space believe that agreements are king when it comes to locking people in. And they actually believe that it's because of the agreement that, that they're, they're doing the agreement to lock people in. But is the, is the real reason for having an agreement more for risk reduction or is it for what? Why, why should someone have an agreement? It, it, it can be both. Uh, risk mitigation is one reason to specify what services you are providing, also what services you are not providing. You typically have an excluded services section in the either the MSA or the SOW, and those are important. So it, it not only defines what services you're providing, but but identifies services you're not providing. But on the you know on the concept of locking someone in, um, I have MSPs that deal with those considerably differently. Uh, the MSPs that charge an upfront uh, onboarding fee are less concerned about perhaps a, a 36 month agreement because they're, they're getting some of that revenue upfront for the onboarding. Um, others who brings, bring their customers on and do not require uh, you know, any type of onboarding fee, they need to amortize that over the life of the contract. So if, if you're going to spend, you know, a month or two or three onboarding a new customer to get them up to your standards and you're not charging them for that additional work, how else are you going to make that money back? It, it might take you 24 months before you are whole again. And, right. you know, that, that's that's the aspect that, that people really don't consider um, on why these are important. Now, if we want to switch gears for a moment and, and consider it in the context of an acquisition scenario and we're, we're talking about you know what the acquirer is potentially purchasing from that msp 
if you don't have any sort of long-term agreements with your customers, what guarantee do I have that they're going to be customers for any time beyond, you know, either month to month or within seven months? And so the value that I'm looking at to purchase your company, if, if what you're telling me is I can only guarantee you this customer is going to be with me for the next seven months, uh, that's not worth a lot to me. Yeah. I've also seen some people talk about at least from the value perspective of an MSP that a lot of times it's tied to ownership. So people develop relationships with the owners of the MSP and all of a sudden if they want to leave, then it makes that a little bit more of a struggle because they don't want to be with someone they don't know per se. And so Perhaps. have you, have you recognized any of that where, uh, you know, when you're looking at an M&A situation and that changes the dynamic because the people that are the clients are disinterested in moving in the smaller MSPs, that's certainly a possibility. And one of the concepts in the M&A world that, that keeps popping up with MSPs is around retention and how long you, uh, you know, how long the acquiring company is going to be able to retain those customers. Sometimes they'll base the, the purchase price off this uh, very elaborate retention formula. And if, if you know, 20% of the customers leave after year one, then, then your retention amount is going to be you know, X. And if you know, 50% have left um, after year two, then the retention percentage is gonna be Y. It, it can truly be an algorithm on, on working to calculate all of this. I'm not fond of that in the first place. Uh, <laughs> You know, if, if the acquisition is bringing that owner aboard and we're talking about them being with the company for two to five years on an employment contract, then um, maybe that that's a that's a little better because the owner still has skin in the game and is able to ensure that those customers stay there. But if, when you turn over that service uh, and, and so in you know, one scenario is. The owner is going to be around for 90 days to help with transition and to introduce new customers and you know do do all of that um, sure. shaking hands and kissing babies and then walking right, away. Right. So right. so after that 90 days, they have no control whatsoever over how the acquiring company services their prior customers. And so if I'm if I'm walking away and I'm giving all of that to the acquiring company in hopes that I'll get my retention payment. In, in two to three years from now, uh, I have no control over that. I, I don't know that I right. want to rest that faith in them. I would much rather agree on a purchase price that's going to be paid on the terms that we agree on. And if I'm walking away after 90 days, then that's that. I, I have no further responsibility for it. So we're all the way down this M&A track and I want to back up just for a second. That's okay. It's, it's perfect. Cause that's, that's exactly where that that's where it led. Um, when we're talking about agreements, one thing I'm just curious about, and we're seeing this a lot. So we're seeing compromises. We're seeing whether it's Microsoft 365 is, is receiving uh, some sort of, you know, or they're getting compromised. And then the, the MSP with or without an agreement may or may not be attempting to reduce that risk through the agreement. But when it comes down to it and we go to court, like how likely is an MSP to get out of that, uh, you know, the scope being on them because they're the IT provider and this company was breached regardless to or with an agreement? Like, How does that settle out? Excellent question. And with many questions uh, in, in the law, the answer is it depends. <laughs> right. 
was that MSP providing security services for them? And was there any guarantee or warranties around protecting the environment saying that they were, uh, by, by the way, this, this phrase I see used so often um, in marketing purposes, and then it doesn't actually flow through to the contract. And that is MSPs that say, we're, we're your one-stop shop for fill in the blank, right? For everything IT related. Well, if you're the one-stop shop for everything IT related, that also implies security. And if you are not monitoring that environment and maintaining control of the security of, of that environment, you know, by the way, there's, there's two aspects of security. There's, there's preventing the breaches, and then there's also detecting and stopping, mitigating them after the fact, right? So sure. uh, oftentimes you, you see breaches where the criminals were inside of systems for months and months and just lying in wait. So if it's one of those scenarios where the MSP is a one-stop shop and it's disclosed that there are criminals that have been lying in wait for months and months inside the customer system, how in the world are they going to argue that it wasn't their responsibility when everything they, they presented to that customer said otherwise? It makes me think about a lot of the MSPs, well, I call them uh, more of a break-fix environment where they do say we're, we are your one-stop shop. And what they're thinking mentally is we're here for all your technical needs when it comes to repairing your computer, buying and replacing your computers or putting in your, your network. But it's, but what you're saying is, is when people say that there is an assumption that it includes all things, even if it's not included per the agreement. Yes. And on, on top of that, if I'm your one-stop shop, every time you call me and you request me to do something for you, then that's different. Uh, you know, at a TNM rate, than having a, a managed services agreement that says we're going to provide some level of monthly services for you. And oh, by the way, we're, we're your one-stop shop for those, gotcha. those monthly services. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Again, every everything is contextual, right? If, if you're the break fix shop and it's one stop shop, every time you call me and you request me to do something for you, and there might just be an ongoing agreement on the price that says I'm going to charge you X dollars per hour um, when you call me to request service, then that's different from being a one stop shop and I'm charging you, you know, seventy five, one hundred and fifty dollars per node every month for these managed services. What about the ones that don't have agreements at all? Uh, well, um, I, I would love to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, like, what are some things that could happen that they don't even know? Well, so here, here's, a, here's a great one. Uh, you know, one of the standard clauses in, uh, in any contract that we work on is a limitation of liability and what amount we're going to set for that limitation of liability. This is typically for direct damages, right? So um, we deliver a service, we erase all of your data because we were grossly negligent in, in doing this, and you suffer, customer suffers damages as a result of that. How much am I gonna have to pay? What, what is the max amount I'm gonna have to pay for that? And of course, there's there's some uh, different different uh, types of damages that are out there, whether it's consequential um, or sequential damages, punitive damages, th things of that nature. Um, but if we're saying I was directly damaged, the customer, I was directly damaged 
um, $750,000 because you did this. Uh, are you going to have to pay that $750,000? Or might you have some sort of limitation that says it's only going to be uh, the amount of services for some period of months that the customer paid you for, uh, for, for those damages? And, you know, if we want to talk about insurance and the types of insurance that you can use to help mitigate um, on the MSP side, you know, that, that's another discussion we could probably have a whole, uh, a whole episode on. <laughs> so, right. So if there isn't a limitation of liability, does that mean there potentially isn't a limitation on that liability? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So they could, be, they, could, they could take the whole company, they could take anything and everything they wanted. Potentially. Well, I mean, they, they have Depending to actually, on the nature of yeah, you sure. still have to prove your damages. So they it, it, they can't just pick a number out of out of the blue and say, oh yeah, I was I was damaged twenty million dollars, so therefore give, give me everything. But if they genuinely were damaged that amount and you didn't have a contract that limited your damages by uh, you know any um, contractual measure, then quite possibly yes. Do you think there's a risk associated with MSPs that are security focused, but don't require security solutions implemented. Uh, is there any sense where not requiring what you know to, to need to be installed that safe, whether it's a solution or a practice and you know better, but the, the client didn't want it, they get compromised and that would have that whatever it was solution been resolved. Is it something where MSP should say, if you know it's a risk and you have a solution, you should 100% always apply it no matter what or what? Or the or what is or you have your client sign a written acknowledgement stating we recommended that you implement fill in the blank and you have declined to implement that for whatever reason. Therefore, any. Uh, any consequences that occur as a result of, of your decision not to implement fill-in-the-blank technology is not our responsibility anymore. You, you are acknowledging the risk for failing to do that. I'm going to give you one huge disclaimer on that, though. There are uh, regulated industries, and, and medical is the biggest one, HIPAA, that if you know they need to do something to be, you know, quote-unquote, HIPAA compliant, and they're declining to do that, then my recommendation to those customers is to discontinue your services with them and to document for your sake that we recommended you do this, this, and this, and you decline to do those services or, or consume those services from our company. Therefore, we do not believe it's in the best interest that we, we work together any longer. If you have actual knowledge of a HIPAA violation on behalf of your customers and you're continuing to work with them, that is not going to bode well for you, particularly because the Office of Civil Rights has the ability to reach down to any business associate and hold business associates responsible for uh, any issues that result in disclosure of PHI. Do you think, okay, so let's take it for example, uh, an MSP working with a small family practice, uh, it's so small, in fact, they do very little with their HIPAA, as most, as we probably know, many small phys uh, physician offices do. But they don't even have a BAA. They didn't sign a BAA. 
they told them they needed to do things to be HIPAA compliant. The, the company says, well, yeah, well, we haven't been breached yet. So there's not a BAA in place per se, but they are processing insurance information. So they're, they are required to comply. What's that risk like? I, I think my advice remains the same. Okay. Leave that customer. If they are refusing, I mean, signing a business associate agreement is so basic now we're, we're 10 years past when the High Tech Act was signed, and sure. the Office of Civil Rights has, has fined many, many covered entities for failing to sign business associate agreements with all of their business associates. If they're refusing to sign a BAA, then that is a red flag for that MSP who's providing those services. And that, that is, again, just so basic that they're not going to do any of the precautionary measures that will take them above and beyond from a protection standpoint sure. if they're unwilling to even meet that basic threshold. And you know better as an MSP. You absolutely know. Better. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know better, yeah. What other things from a legal perspective, so we talked a lot of about agreements per se, but what other things legally should MSPs worry about? I worry about marketing type language making its way into contracts and typically it happens in the form of we're sending you a proposal that has all of this flowery fluffy language at the beginning and then we've got some terms and conditions stuff at the end of this but taken in the aggregate it appears as though that that one proposal is a contract and that's where things like we're your one-stop shop for everything IT can make its way into a proposal that should not be read in conjunction with the, the terms and conditions. So I, when I bring on an MSP and we talk about what their uh, master service agreement looks like and what their statement of work or you know whatever, whatever their contracting mechanism is that they're using, I like to see the package that they send to the customer. And I want to look at that from a top-down standpoint to make sure that there isn't some of this other language entering into the equation uh, that could be misconstrued as a promise to deliver services that is outside of what they're actually delivering in the statement of work. That's really interesting. What else do you see, or is there anything else that's really a focal point that MSPs just completely, every MSP seems to whiff on uh, because it, it, you know, it, Again, you know, we like to think that we can have a decent understanding of some things legal, although we're not attorneys per se, but um, maybe things we don't even think about outside of that, which is really good, though. It's comparison of what you just said, which was making sure that you're not promising things in your proposals that aren't in your agreement or vice versa. Yeah. So, you know, I, I used to work in the MSP space myself before becoming a lawyer and uh, I have a bachelor's in computer science and I can speak geek with uh, with my MSP owners. And well, there's a common trait among uh, those of us in the IT industry, and that is we're problem solvers and we like to do good for our customers. And we, we like to say that we can fix things. We roll up our sleeves. We, we get stuff done. And oftentimes our contracts are a reflection of that mentality. Of we're going to be able to do this, 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 and this. And what, what you believe to be aspirational comes across as a warranty of services. And I, I think that that mental tendency to do the right thing for your customer, to 
want to fix all of their problems, and I do mean all of their problems. Uh, here, here's a perfect example. The MSPs that will uh, go into a customer environment and tell them what their data retention policies should be, which, by the way, has very many legal impl impl implications. Uh, the MSP that goes in there and says, this is what your PCI settings should be, which again, has a lot of legal implications. So there's, there's these crossing of boundaries and um, we want to help our customer versus now I'm, I'm entering the realm of giving legal advice. And the moment I start giving legal advice, I become obligated to that advice. Um, and there's also a concern of unauthorized practice of law, but that, that's in large part secondary between you and the customer. That, that's more of a regulatory issue sure, uh, sure. so much as it is the, the customer holding you to, to what you promised when you came in to deliver. How do you feel about MSPs driving policy, like creation of policies for local offices? and implementing those policies what's your thoughts implementing a policy that was provided to you from your customer is different from telling them what the policy should be if if you are coming in and giving those customers a piece of paper that says this is what your policy should be uh for example th this is this is what your um, all of your password setting, uh, password policy settings are going to be. Um, there is a difference between be industry best practices that you can make recommendations that they will then take to their legal counsel and have reviewed and signed off versus coming in and giving that to them and saying, this is, this is not your policy. And again, the, many of these things have regulatory implications depending on the industry of the customer that as IT people, we want to solve problems. Do you think that the MSP, if they do drive policy, could be at risk of some sort of liability if that policy per se was not either adequate for a required industry compliance model or it left them potentially vulnerable for something else? Without question, MSP can be responsible for that and be liable for that. Well, that's a it's a new and up and coming thing. It's policy generation, driving, um, mm -hmm. helping the clients out, and and we haven't you know we kind of stayed out of that way because we aren't business owners, and it's really hard to push policy when you aren't you know you don't have you're not a stakeholder in the company, and um, you have a position like that. But we've always been in the position of offering that like we have solutions that would provide policy templates, and we say you build it, we'll help you if it's around a technology aspect of things that are done, so that you keep consistency, and then from that point forward, you kind of own driving it. The MSP should have a seat at the table. There's no question about that. But having a seat at the table versus being at the head of the table and telling everyone in the room what the policy is going to be is different. It ultimately should be the legal counsel for that company sure. that signs off on the regulatory side of it. And then the, you know, the, 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 the business side of the company needs to say whether their users are going to accommodate those policies mm. and, you know, whether there's any sort of um, business uh, you know, impact to implementing the policy. Sure. And data retention is is by far the the, the biggest one that that gets me sure. going. You know, I mentioned password. That that one's a, a, a little little less uh, onerous. But you know, any MSP that comes in there and says hey, this is what your data retention should be, and when we get to the point of data destruction, that absolutely has to have legal input included. Sure. Okay. On the business side. 
Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we side. provide, I'll we do provide data uh, retention direction, but not as a direction of the company, but as the direction of the solution that which we offer. So for example, if we have a backup solution that runs for Office 365, it holds, hey, our data retention for emails is seven years and the, uh, and the SharePoint OneDrive is one year and then however you want to do it from there. But that's, is there anything wrong with that limitation? When it, you, depends. When <laughs> it depends on okay. the customer. Yep. Okay. Depends on okay. the customer. Well, it, right. I guess if it didn't fit their compliance requirements or something along those lines. Correct. Because you, you, so for, here's a good example. You mentioned SharePoint retention. So what if they're using SharePoint for hosting medical records? Totally different scenario then. Right. Yeah. What if they're in the finance financial industry and are FINRA regulated and have to have audit logs and, uh, you know, any type of transactional data maintained? So, you know, th there's, there's no one size fits all for every customer of an MSP. All right. One more question about this. And I want to ask about the M&A stuff. Mm -hmm. So we oftentimes help our clients when they get cyber liability policies, they have an application that they don't understand. So mm -hmm. we'll go through and say, check this box. Yes. And we'll even put a note in there saying, this is a solution that we use for this. This is the solution we use for that. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything wrong with that? If you're answering factually what they have and what they do not have, no, there, there's nothing wrong with that. You're okay. you're providing input to the a, a few of those questions on the form, not not the entire form, by right. the way, right. <laughs> not the entire form, right. Right. but you are probably in a good position to say whether they are compliant with right. that item or not. Uh, you know, the one the one caveat I would say for the MSPs is. Oftentimes you, you have insight into their infrastructure, but you might not have insight into the applications that run on top of the infrastructure, the, the business level applications, nor would you know what settings are configured at, at those levels. Uh, you know, perfect example, Salesforce is, is becoming increasingly popular as a tool, not only for uh, CRM, but for application integrations, a lot of development that occurs on top of Salesforce. If you all are not managing their Salesforce, you can't speak to what the settings are configured for Salesforce. So any sort of qualifier that you can provide in uh, assisting with, with those responses would benefit you, the MSP, to add those qualifiers. And so if, if that means that would, yeah, hmm. I, I'm speaking specifically to your Microsoft 365 infrastructure. Right. Right. Well, that does make sense. There's, uh, it's not uncommon to have an MFA requirement for cloud solutions. Sure. And oftentimes that doesn't say for Microsoft 365, sometimes they do, but most of the time it's just saying, do you have, do you provide MFA for all cloud solutions? And if you don't specify the caveat is yes, for Microsoft 365 unknown for others, because maybe it's accounting firm and they use you know, Thompson Reuter and they've got five different applications and they, and those don't have it. When you check the box and you say, yes, you're it, they're believing that you have it on everything possible. Correct. And you, you added a qualifier to that as well. You said, do you use MFA for all cloud solutions? Some yeah. of the questions might just say, does your company use MFA? Question mark. <laughs> that is a fact. That is true. All right. Let's talk about something a little bit more fun. So okay. let's say. Um, I was having fun with that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in lieu of time we have here, I wanted to, I want to keep this a little bit shorter. But M&A is a really interesting environment for me. And I think it's a lot of, it's a very interesting environment for A, MSPs that are looking to, you know, maybe the owners are looking to retire. 
Maybe they're looking to expand. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine a multitude of ways that you can put two companies together, whether it's keep same name, not keep same name. What are some common themes that you see in the MA space between two MSPs? Or maybe, you know, uh, one MSP that has a couple of locations or whatever, but we're talking about two, two companies. Yep, yep. Uh, oftentimes it is more of the uh, I'm ready to retire or um, I, I'm looking to, right? So, so we, we have to kind of break it down on, on which, which aspect we're, we're referring to here. So, so let's say we're the acquired, we, we are the company that's being acquired. We're going to be bought out. I'm either looking to retire or I'm looking to insert myself into a larger organization without having to give up my customers. So if I'm in a scenario where I'm retiring, then I might have some employees who are uh, going to come over into the acquiring company. And in that case, I'm not worried about the name of, of my company, the, the, the legacy of it, it so to speak. Um, I'm, just more, I'm just worried about my payout. <laughs> I do want to make sure my employees are going to be taken care of as well. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of you know, what, what my retirement income looks like now. Uh, if I'm instead looking to join a larger organization and still do right by my customers, then I have a little more skin in the game there. I, I, I might care more about my name and the, the ongoing aspect of it. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm bringing in 10% of the overall revenue of this new conglomerate organization, then uh, maybe my name isn't worth as much uh, to, to the acquiring company. So, you know, again, it's one of those scenarios where it really all depends. And, um, you know, what, what's important to the company that is uh, being acquired? Is it possible to buy an MSP without a dollar down? I have not seen that personally, but um, I, anything is possible. <laughs> what, so what's the common theme that you see, whether it's, uh, you know, let's say, let's just say it's a million dollar company. That's an sure. million dollar MSP. That's their, their, their uh, annual revenue. Yep. And maybe let's say 70% of that is recurring three and 30% of that is project work. But, and, uh, and someone wants to buy that company. How might that work? We can spend hours on that particular question. So let's just assume for a moment that we're going to buy it for a million dollars, right? That that's the purchase price. Okay. Um, and and how that owner ultimately gets paid. And so first of all, if there's multiple owners of the company, you know, we're talking about dividing up uh, whatever that uh, that that purchase price is by the equity in the company. So um, you know, sometimes there's a five or ten percent employee share uh, employee pool they're, they're going to take some of that uh, there's the concept of phantom equity in companies that uh, upon a change of control or uh, upon a uh, just an absolute acquisition of, of all or substantially all the assets some employees or key people get uh, portions of the company there uh, sometimes you have situations where former spouses are um, partial owners and uh, they, they take some sort of the, the payout as well. But if it's just a, an easy scenario where you have one owner who's 100%, no phantom equity or, or anything of that nature, um, there's, there's two ways I, I typically see this happening. Um, you can do owner financing where they're going to get 
some portion of it up front, typically 20, 40 percent, uh, depending on the, the cash flow of the acquiring company. And then there will be a payout over anywhere between three to 10 years. Uh, and I say 10 because typically the SBA, Small Business Administration, will issue uh, 10-year payment notes to uh, acquiring companies. And so if the owner is going to finance the, the deal for the acquiring company, then usually it's going to be a little better rate than what the SBA would, would otherwise um, offer. Sure. And so the SBA usually requires some sort of a retention payment as well. Sure. And, and life insurance on, on the... Is that pretty big? Uh, retention rates for that, would that be, I mean, 5%, 10%? It, it's, it's, it's in the 10 to 20%. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you, they typically want to see life insurance on the the owners that sure. uh, are, are acquiring the company as well, and um, it's it's a government process, so not not the uh, not not the simplest to go through. <laughs> there, there was a time not long ago where, where they seemed to be just writing checks um, pretty uh, pretty willy nilly, but uh, with interest rates going up. The scrutiny has increased significantly, and it, it's not nearly as fast as the process as, uh, as it once was. So um, the the other way, and, and, and in that first scenario there, the person was um, just sort of walking away from the business. That might have been one of those 90-day uh, periods where um, they're just helping with the transition, and, and then they walk. The other situation is there's some sort of an employment agreement where the owner of that company is going to be guaranteed employment for up to two years, maybe five, you know, two to five years, some, some period of time that, that's mutually agreeable. And uh, as long as they don't, uh, aren't, aren't terminated for cause, then they're going to be with the company and they'll be just become an employee. Um, in that scenario, the purchase price is usually uh, lower because they're going to continue getting compensation for those two to five years thereafter. Um, so, you know, the, the, the amount that the buyer pays for the company varies widely on so many different factors. Um, you know, first of all, just go back to the contract and uh, what is the, the monthly recurring revenue for the company that's being acquired? How long have those customers been there? How much duration remains on that agreement. If it's a 36 month contract, are there only three months remaining in it? Uh, because you can really only guarantee that the customer is going to be there for another three months um, sure. versus you know someone who uh, just renewed for a three year term and has been with them for five plus years, something of that nature. Um, you've, you've got a little more certainty in that scenario. So what I like to tell the companies that are looking to be acquired is plan your acquisition when you don't want to sell. Do all of the things, all of the, the due diligence preparation that if, if I'm representing the, the MSP that's going to be acquiring you, we're going to dig into those details. I want to know what your contracts look like. I want to look, I want to know where the risks to the acquiring company uh, is because any risk that they're taking on is going to be a reduction in the purchase price. Sure. It's just how it works. It's a reduction sure. in the purchase price. Sure. As well as debt, right? And then if they have personal debt that's on the business counts or, you know, um, there's some questions about how debt is handled when it comes to that. Do you acquire and, and not take debt or, you know, some of the debt or do they, you know, do they, does that move to the, the seller or things of that nature, right? To get, make that a little bit more complex. Yeah. Good, good question. Uh, in with, I mentioned the SBA having, um, 
handed out money not not too long ago during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people took on uh, the idle loans, EIDL loans, mm-hmm. and in an M&A situation, uh, if I'm the acquiring company, I want to see that loan um, extinguished. I want to see it paid off so that I don't have any question of. Um, and, and oh, by the way, if there is an SBA loan out there, typically the SBA has to consent to the transaction in advance as well. Sure. So um, w- with that in mind, if you're buying all of or substantially all the assets of the, um, the, the seller, then you have to have a plan for what's going to happen with that debt. It's either going to be paid off through the purchase or you're acquiring that debt. Yeah, either way. There's a lot to think about. What in the situation where you have, what if there's a situation where you've got two MSPs, you've got maybe one or two owners and you've got three or four owners and you've got small and bigger and they want to join together. Sure. And and of course, if you start looking at percentages, you go, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not letting them have a part of mine when I'm coming over here to a smaller MSP and you know, we have all our stuff together and you don't or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like how, how do you settle the dust in an environment and not specifically, but just in vague terms, how do you settle that dust? Uh, well, the, the only M&A that's going to work well is one that you have reasonable people on both sides and you, you both know what your outcome is. So if I'm acquiring you, I want to make profit off of that. And if, if you're selling, you have to have a reasonable sales price. So if they can't come to an agreement on what the purchase price is going to look like, nor can they come to agreement on what the, um, you know, what the relationship is going to look like after the fact, then they're not the right parties to, to work together. Uh, it's not going to go well. Somebody's going to end up unhappy on, on the other side of that. If but remember, they're... these are these are willing transactions that we're talking about. Here. This, is, <laughs> right. this is not, right. you know, not hostile takeover. Exactly. We're not going into a fire sale and, and saying, you know, there, there's no bidding process here, you know, to the, sure. to the highest to lowest bidder in some situations. What about the merger situation? Is that do you see mergers that are generally more about percentage of ownership swapping? Uh, versus an investment swapping, or is there? Hey, you're you know you're you make half the revenue recurring annual recurring revenue that we do, so you have to pay a little bit to be, become part of a bigger company that makes a lot more. How does the merger aspect work? So anytime, what I think you were asking there is when I come over, if I'm the seller and I come over to the new company, am I getting some sort of an equity stake in, in that company? Is that where you're yeah, going? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was asking. Yeah. Great job. Yeah. So there's risk with any equity position. And if, if, if what we're talking about here, so, so first of all, we need to know what the purchase price is and what that amount, again, stick with our million dollars. So okay. if what we're saying is, um, you, you, we're going to give you a million bucks, but uh, 20% of that is going to be in equity in our company. Now there's a question of, well, how, how am I getting um, $200,000 of value out of the equity of the acquiring company? Right? What, what does that post-acquisition value look like in that company? And am I willing to take that risk? Uh, the percentage may not matter so much, right? I mean, it, it, sure. 20% of revenue versus um, 20% of the company. Now, maybe maybe that's not the right calculation, depending on uh, what the liabilities of that that other company are, right? They might also have one of those um, idle loans on the books that 
can increase increase the risk to uh, that that new company. You you might also have a situation where the seller was highly profitable; they had great margins, but the acquiring company has much slimmer margins, but they've got a massive, you know, much larger amount of revenue. So um, the percentage may not really be the same. It, it, you're really talking about what is the value of that company once I come aboard, and how do I get my 200 grand, uh, you know, in, in equivalent equity at that time of the transaction. Now, after that, hopefully it's going to appreciate and, you know, the company will be worth more over time, but you can't guarantee that. What are some M&A pitfalls? Oh, how much time you have? <laughs> <laughs> just give us the top couple that would just like, you know, that just yeah. burn so, your bottom. You know, I, I mentioned the whole retention aspect uh, yeah. around customers that are uh, with the acquiring company after you know, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. Um, I, I don't I don't like that approach. I would much rather everyone know what they're going, what they're getting into as of the, the time of that transaction. Um, and then if, if we're looking at that owner to come aboard as an employee, then maybe you talk about some sort of incentive compensation plan with that person. And that's how you do some sort of a, a, a retention bonus with them, as opposed to modifying the purchase price over time. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, because there's also tax implications to all of this and, and how you depreciate, how the acquiring company depreciates the assets that they purchase. So contracts are assets. And I don't think people necessarily realize them uh, or, or think of them that way. Uh, and so they have a depreciation value over time based on that that purchase price that you pay. Sure. So, um, you know, they really needs to have a conversation with the CPAs for the company as well to know what that total purchase price looks like. Um, you know, other other things that uh, a pitfall from the selling company is just just not really being prepared for the process at all. Uh, thinking that their value of the company is really one thing when um, when you when you dig into the contracts and you dig into their their finances. Realize it's, eh, it wasn't really worth that. It was a great lifestyle business for you, the owner, but it's not really a good asset for me to purchase at the price that you think it's worth. So one of the things I, I suggest to uh, people around that is, you know, we've talked about the contracts. You mentioned that getting those in a row yep. ahead yep. of time. But you also need to do the same process with your with your finances and in, in, in your books. Uh, here, here's a great example. Maybe that owner has a company car that uh, the company pays for. And maybe the acquiring company has no need for that, that company car. So how is that going to be reflected? Uh, if, if they were paying $500 or $1,000 a month payments toward that company car that uh, the owner is going to uh, retain outside of, of this transaction, um, should that increase the purchase price? Because the, was the company actually more profitable than uh, than, it, than it was conveying on the books yeah. and records? Um, you know, things like uh, if if they work out of their home office and they're depreciating a portion of their their house every year on their tax returns, um, that's not 
uh, depreciation expense that the acquiring company is going to get. Now. Right. It would so, end. you know, exactly. So, so they're not going to have the benefit of that depreciation expense. So you really need to think of it in terms of what is the va what is the value of the revenue that's coming in? And then now let's look at the expenses or the liabilities of this company and see if all of them are going to transfer over or uh, if some of them are, are unnecessary on the other side. And, and by the way, th there's really only two reasons that an acquiring company buys another MSP. It's either to perform the services better or it's to perform the services cheaper. Usually not the same, you know, excuse me, usually not both. Usually right, not both. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's funny. Yeah. All right. Two last questions. Uh, one being when it comes to valuation, is there a kind of a common norm that they, people are looking for Yeah, let's say it's a million dollar company, uh, 70, let's use the same thing, 70% uh, recurring revenue, 30% uh, project work or one-off type of work how they and, and say let's say that they've sustained that it's a you know a 10 or 15 percent growth every year something along those lines a small percentage growth or normal i guess you would say what's sure. that like from you know somebody comes in and says well i want eight million dollars for the business <laughs> yeah well, like how does someone go that's really ridiculous yeah uh interestingly there there's this concept of if you're the seller you think that it's just three times your revenue and that's the amount that somebody should pay for you. Um, no, no, it's not because uh, what, what is the, what is your profit margin on that million dollars? You know, if you could, you could have a million dollars in revenue, but still uh, lose money every year. So I'm not going to give you $3 million for your company. If you haven't been profitable uh, over the past three to five years, um, so uh, first of all, I want to look at your margins and I want to give you some multiple off of, off of those margins. Uh, you know, you can just, just say EBITDA, uh, sure. and what margin off of EBITDA are we, are we talking about? Uh, there was a time a few years ago where these multiples were insane. I mean, people were paying 10 X, even saw a deal come across, didn't, didn't end up closing, but, uh, saw a deal come across that was a 20 X multiple, which that's insane. Didn't close. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. But it was it was out there. Uh, so the the answer again is it, it depends. And if you're on the acquiring side, am I doing this to provide a better service, or am I doing this to pro provide the service cheaper? How much am I going to be able to profit by purchasing this asset? And uh, you know, and, and delivering that service. And and by the way, if if it's a, a million dollar company, million dollars in revenue, and they've got twenty employees, and you're going to hire, you know, all twenty of them or nineteen of them, the owner, the owner's not going to come aboard. Well, then you still have that cost on the other side. Sure. When it comes to understanding the valuation, and this is my last question, when it comes to understanding the evaluation of an MSP. What should an MSP that's looking to purchase, what, who should they go to speak to to ensure that they have someone in their corner that can truly value um, that MSP? For example, and I just want to send this out, our CPA does that. But mm -hmm. they don't do it for the MSP space, and they said basically there's just a lot. There's not a lot of information that's readily available for that. So it's almost like you need someone that does that on a considerable level. But my curiosity is curious: how would someone be able to vet that? 
it is definitely it's it's your CPA and it's your lawyer. You want to understand the legal risk so that you're you're whittling down that value if there is a lot of risk, and then you want to um, you 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 also need your CPAs involved to help you dissect any of those extra costs that are in the in those books and records that need to come out. So it's more of a like a CPA forensic analysis of yeah. So there's you know, consultancy, CPA consultancy firms that um, if if you're on the selling side, you can engage them to help you get your books and records in order. Um, if you're on the buying side, you you want them to conduct a forensic analysis of those books and see what's under the covers there. Do you? Uh, I guess I'll ask one last question. Sorry. When it comes to the M and A process, there are a number of companies that. They, they seek them, they seek out. So they're a third party. They seek sure. out the MSPs that want to be sold uh, to either purchase themselves through maybe a VC or something, or they're then looking to find someone. So I've been reached out to a number of times, either wanting sure. to buy ours or to sell us someone else's. Do you believe that, um, is that a wild, wild west environment? Uh, I, I might plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like... I, I just think, you know, someone who's, you know, and I don't, this isn't about age, but you know, someone that's say maybe in their sixties, they've been doing this for 35 years and they're like, I really want out. And you get someone that calls or they reach out to you by LinkedIn and they say, we buy and sell. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, we'll do the NDA. We'll look at your, like, is, should you just go, let me send you to my attorney? <laughs> I would I would talk to a business bro. If you're in the market to sell and you don't know who you're going to sell to, I would talk to a reputable business broker in the area, or you know, okay. who at least knows something about the MSP space. Uh, I'm not a big fan of those solicitations and just the cold calls around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna I've, I've got somebody who wants to acquire you, or I've got this MSP who I can sell to you. Um, you know, I've had clients who have started to do that dance with the brokers or, or whoever, whoever those middle people are. I don't necessarily want sure. to refer to them as brokers. Uh, I've had many clients who, who have started down that dance. I've not once had any of them close a deal on either side of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I thank you for all of the insight that you've given to all the listeners, especially around the agreement side even talking about policies and how that's handled externally versus internally or cyber liability insurance and M&A. But I really appreciate your time. Thanks for spending it and hope somebody got a lot of value out of it.